Sometimes I wish I could boldly go where no man's gone before. But I'll probably stay in Aurora. What are you thinking about? Cassandra. She's a fox. In France, she would be called La Renard, and she would be hunted with only her cunning to protect her. She's a babe. She's a robo-babe. In Latin, she would be called Babia Majora. If she were a president, she'd be Abraham Lincoln. Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he'd put on a dress and play a girl bunny? No. <laughs> no. Neither did I. I was, I was just asking. Okay, okay. Keep looking up. Okay. Welcome to the Saturday Night Live After Party. While we await SNL's season 45 premiere, I thought it might be fun to share a discussion of the 1992 feature film Wayne's World that I recorded earlier this summer with the fine folks over at the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. You can listen to Retro Movie Roundtable wherever better podcasts can be found. And you can connect with me at snlpodcast.com. If you're enjoying our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get early, ad-free access to each new podcast episode, as well as many other exclusive member rewards. It's your support that makes the cast possible, and we are so thankful to everyone who's already pitched in. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash SNL podcast. All right, enjoy. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Chad Robinson. How are you doing, Russell? I am doing fantastic. You know what makes me in a good mood? First time guests make me in a good time mood. You know what Woo! else? Yeah, you know what else puts me in a good mood? Saturday Night Live. And today we've got the best of both worlds. First time guest and SNL extraordinaire, John Murray. How are you doing, John? Pretty good. You paint me as though I'm I'm somehow like associated with SNL. SNL podcasting extraordinaire, maybe. Let's not confuse the audience. Well, you're over there rubbing elbows with the people. Yeah, that's true. I'm one of them now, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you attended the after party, which is appropriate because you host the show, SNL After Party. And I have to say, I've been listening to it for, I think, three seasons now. Is that how long you've been on? Yeah, we started with coverage of season 42. So yeah, I guess you've been there since the beginning. Well, I think I went back and, you know, I, I'm, I'm an SNL <laughs> nerd. And you, when you're in between seasons in the summer, you're kind of like itching for it to come back. Right. So like if you go back and listen to it, I can kind of relive the episode a little bit. Back episodes actually work pretty well. It's pretty evergreen content. Well, that's fantastic. It always makes my day when someone tells me that they enjoy the show enough that they would go back and check it out after it's, you know, long past its prime, after the actual show has come out, to actually be willing to go back and, and find some value in the back catalog that's <laughs> that's pleasing yeah and we hope that three years from now somebody would want to listen to this too so i was gonna say you hear that listeners 
<laughs> Go watch the Halloween episode. I'm sad. So, John, we have to hit some hard-hitting, deep questions. Are you are you prepared for that? Yeah, let's do it. What is your favorite Saturday Night Live character or sketch that you would want to see made into a movie? Okay, I have very mixed feelings about this question because if you know anything about SNL sketches that have transitioned to movies, it's usually really dismal. Like, for every Wayne's World, there's 10 movies that are just are unwatchably bad. So um, I feel like for the good of humanity, the answer should be no SNL sketch should ever be turned into a movie. Um, because yeah, more often than not, it, it's a train wreck. But that said, one of my favorite characters from recent era SNL is Bobby Moynihan's drunk uncle. He's actually just a weekend update desk feature yes. where he comes out and, and rants in, you know, racially charged and uninformed terms. Um, I think that that's a brilliant character. And I think that with the, sort of like social upheaval that we have, you know, in, in the Western yes. world right now, that having a character as crass as him to kind of be a contrast to, you know, people that are really up on social justice or me too, or whatever it is to have someone that's like so opposed to that. I think there would be like some really great social commentary that could be mined from that. That said, he's a pretty one dimensional character. And, and if his outing was the same as so many other SNL sketches, uh, it could be, you know, dank. But if anything had some promise, I think maybe his character would have some promise. And Bobby Moynihan's a genius, so I would love to see him transition to the big screen and really have a vehicle to put him on the map. So, Drunk Uncle, I like it. I want to know what love is. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so what is the hardest laugh that you've gotten from a movie? It doesn't have to be in a Saturday Night Live movie, but comedy movie. I hate to admit it because I don't even necessarily like people to know that I've seen this movie, but probably, probably came from Borat. I don't know if you guys have seen that, but that movie is so gonzo that you're not just laughing at the, the stupidity of the character, but you're kind of on the edge of your seat because everything that they're presenting feels very real and very dangerous. So it's like, there's this added layer of context of just how this character could like literally get shot at any minute. There's one scene where he goes uh, somewhere down in Texas or, you know, some Southern state, he goes to a rodeo yeah. and he, he butchers the, um, the national anthem and, you know, um, congratulates George Bush on his war of terror. And to think that, you know, one unhinged person, in the audience could literally take him down. And this is not a stage situation. Like these people are really like, uh, turning on him and it, it's very visceral and real that movie it's impactful as as crude as it is it, it really is an amazing feat of a movie so yeah there there is some serious serious laughs to be had in that movie if you're game for it it's quite a ride and uh you know it's got some good not jokes in it too which today's movie has some good not jokes in it as well there you go yeah he's he's a student of uh wayne campbell actually in many ways you're a big saturday night live fan and mm -hmm. who's your favorite cast member based solely on their body of work after they've left the show i have two. First would be tina fey if anyone's listened to our cast they know that i love tina fey she's great for so many reasons you know she had a breakout cult classic Mean Girls back in the day. That is an incredibly sharply written movie. And the fact that that ever got produced is amazing. And the fact that she could kind of keep her voice intact and it didn't get rewritten all to hell. That, that movie is a, is a feat. I think it's you know, great that she was able to actually realize this, uh, a movie that's so much smarter than it should be for that kind of subject material. You know, her Sarah Palin is iconic at this point. Mm -hmm. 30 Rock is one of the best single camera comedies ever produced. 
she's gone on to, you know, parlay her voice into her other ventures like Great News, Kimmy Schmidt. She's unstoppable. She's at the top of her game. I don't think you can point to someone in the comedy sphere, or at least a female in the comedy sphere, that has accomplished more than her or continues to be as much of a force as her. But my honorable mention would be Bill Murray, and there's absolutely no reason why I should have to explain that. Oh, he's (laughs) he's classic, man. That's a great choice. Um, The whole reason why... SNL ever came on my radar was probably Ghostbusters, you know, back when I was a little, little boy realizing that, you know, everyone from that was national lampoon, second city SNL realizing that there was this world, you know, kind of coming out of Chicago and New York that was giving birth to all these, you know, people that I admired. That's what kind of put me down that path. So, you know, he was right there at the forefront. He was, he's Peter Venkman. So yeah, Bill Murray, definitely Tina Fey, definitely. And that's not to say there aren't a lot of other great people that have come out of the show doing fantastic work. I could rattle them off for hours, but those are my tops. Those are great picks, and I'm I, I really like. I'm glad that you said Bill Murray, uh, Chad. I'm I'm ninety percent <laughs> certain with your love of horror movies. Is Zombie Bill Murray your favorite Bill Murray? Yes, but he did a he did a new movie that was not good at all. Um, Star studded cast. It was horror zombie. It was, but it was art zombie. Not so good. Oh, okay. What's so, the, Zombieland Bill yeah, Murray. Zombieland Bill Murray. Okay. Thumbs up. Okay. <laughs> Today's movie, though, Chad, what are we going to do today? Today, we are going to do Wayne's World. Excellent. Excellent. This movie comes out in 1992. It is a smash success. It grosses $121.6 million domestically. Placing it at eighth in the box office, pretty strong showing for a comedy of this nature. It comes in just behind The Bodyguard with uh, the Whitney Houston movie, and it comes ahead of Basic Instinct uh, with the, uh, you know, whoop, whoop, spread, spread the legs. <laughs> Sharon. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Sharon Stone. You got uh, Aladdin was the number one movie that year for a frame of reference. So this is this is 1992 in a nutshell. IMDb gives Wayne's World a 7.0. The critics like it more than that of Rotten Tomatoes. It's amazing, actually. I don't think I've seen this before. The critics and the audience are in complete alignment, both giving it an 84%. So uh, critics and people can't be wrong. So All of this information just stunned me because I'm used to, kind of used to the era of Saturday Night Live movies not being great right. and not performing well. What's no. wrong with the movie Ladies Man, Chad? That was the first one I saw. <laughs> was it? It was. Oh, not even Blues that- Brothers? No. Oh, okay. I saw that later. The thing is, most comedies, even if they're great comedies and, and they're time-tested and they're considered you know, classics, they're usually still really divisive because comedy rarely is everyone's cup of tea, like any particular type of comedy. So to have something that seems to connect with such a wide audience is super rare for any comedy. Uh, and so, yeah, these, these scores really are an amazing testament to what they tapped into with this. But yeah, people loved it. At the time, it was... <laughs> the playground was a Twitter for... Two years, you know, with the lingo from Wayne's World. Like, it really had a cultural impact. It it definitely did. And uh, I always like to mention the awards that it wins. And while this surprisingly got snubbed at the Oscars and the Golden Globes (laughs) and the BAFTAs, it did come away with an MTV award for best on-screen duo between Dana Carvey and Mike Myers. So Mm -hmm. uh, it did come away with some important hardware. And as I mentioned, this is the second Saturday Night Live production. Uh, You know, they're batting two for two at this point because the previous one was Blues Brothers. Uh, Lorne Michaels has a pretty stellar record. I want to get a feel for your background on this, John. You mentioned that uh, Wayne's World uh, was a kind of uh, a kicking up for you and your SNL fandom, right? So wh- where were you uh, when you first saw Wayne's World and how is it coming back to it today? 11-year-old John was taken in by Wayne's World when it kind of became that phenomenon. I was already a, a fan of Dana Carvey's, not as much Mike Myers, but I really wanted to see the movie simply because I, I already loved Dana Carvey. Some of his other movies... Uh, 
he had um, one called like Clean Slate. He had another one called like Opportunity Knox. He always had these like impression vehicle movies that I thought were great back in the late 80s. So I really wanted to see this movie. I didn't get to see it in the theater, but I did see it soon after. I was probably about 11 at the time. And like everyone else my age absorbed it, began to adopt the the lingo and the mannerisms of, of Wayne and Garth. And that just became a source of unending fun between me and my friends during that era in the early 90s. I'm glad you got it right away. I uh, here, Chad, you go. What what is your background and oh, no. with this movie? <laughs> my background is this week with this movie. <laughs> Are you for real? This is your first time. This was my first oh, time. Man. Oh man, this is great. Different I, perspectives. I went into it very nervous because Russell's like, "Hey, we have this SNL guy. He's coming on. We're going to talk about Wayne's World." I'm like, I'm familiar with the skits. A lot of them don't hit home for me. I'm terrified of this movie. <laughs> and so just this week I'd seen it. I was very aware of you know, a lot of the punchlines, a lot of the, the culture around this movie, but yeah, this was fresh for me. Okay, great. That's, that's fantastic then. Uh, and did you, did you, would you say you liked it or not? I was pleasantly surprised. Yes. Okay. For me, I got this one on video when it had freshly come out. So uh, I would have been about seven when I saw this. And I remember it was being advertised on Nickelodeon. And I remember Mike Myers coming on, you know, you know, pitching the movie to basically kids. Yeah. And so my mom got the movie and I think my sister was supposed to watch it with me or, and I, she did not. <laughs> and my mom was mad later because I guess there is a gratuitous sex scene as it is <laughs> as specifically yes. labeled it. And so I, I kind of got away with seeing something that I, I guess I wasn't supposed to, cause it is PG 13. Nobody's supposed to see that. Yeah. Don't worry. I didn't learn anything at that point. I just left with questions more than anything. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. Where did his pants go? I don't understand what's happening. What is he doing with that mummy people seem to be laughing but <laughs> why is he putting on that bra yeah this could be an incredibly confusing movie for a seven-year-old i'm, I'm surprised <laughs> that ever flew so even at even at 11 I, i'm not quite sure that it was the best material because certain jokes that go over your head like i'll have the cream of some young guy um yeah. you're, still, you're still repeating it but you don't really know why it's funny uh so yeah seven-year-old my seven-year-old will not be watching wayne's world <laughs> that much i can say i can at least say that uh you know I, I saw it when I was seven and I didn't, I wasn't hurt. So I wasn't, I didn't end up in jail. So <laughs> All right. not, yet, not yet. For me, I love this movie. I've returned to it throughout the years. I enjoyed it multiple times through college. I, I, I tend to watch both of them back to back. So I'm very likely to watch Wayne's World 2 in the next week or two. And sometimes mm. that bleeds together. So coming back and studying this so I can separate the two and know which one's which, which one has Rob Lowe and which one has Christopher Walken. And yeah, it's good to separate Wayne's World from Wayne's World 2. As we go forward, though, I want to remind everybody, they're going to be spoilers. So if you don't know what happens in Wayne's World, I highly recommend you check it out, come back, and listen to the rest of this podcast. John, why don't you remind people what happens in Wayne's World? Excellent. Wayne Campbell and Garth Algar, the underachieving hosts of a homebrew Midwest cable access show, are courted by an opportunistic television producer who intends to exploit their show to land the advertising account of a regional chain of video arcades. During one of their nightly misadventures in Aurora, Illinois, Wayne discovers and immediately falls deeply in love with Cassandra, the lead singer of a local metal band, Crucial Taunt, who is eager to get signed by a record label. Wayne and Garth naively sell their show to Benjamin, the television producer, who then immediately begins retooling it as a thinly veiled promotional vehicle for Noah's Arcade, whilst Lovestruck Wayne manages to win the affections of Cassandra. During the premiere episode of their revamped show, Wayne chafes at the idea of pandering to their new sponsor and begins to clash with Benjamin. As tensions flare, Wayne alienates Cassandra and Garth and finds himself fired from his own show. 
while Benjamin attempts to steal away Cassandra with promises of a record deal. Rather than wallow in self-pity, Wayne regroups, rallies Garth and his crew, and sets out to reclaim his show and win back Cassandra. Our merry band of misfits commandeer a satellite and infiltrate a local cable access studio in an attempt to beam a special performance by Crucial Taunt directly into the limo of Uber music producer Frank Sharp. Unfortunately, their plan fails and all seems lost, when out of nowhere, Wayne and Garth reclaim the narrative and rewrite the movie's ending. In the end, Wayne and Garth solve the mystery of the haunted amusement park, expose Benjamin as the villainous old man Withers, and get Cassandra her record deal. And there was much rejoicing. <laughs> well done. Very much appreciated. Yes, this is up there for one of my favorite <laughs> movies with uh, multiple endings. I, I don't yes. know. Clue is the, another one that comes to my mind for, mm. for multiple, three multiple endings. I don't know how many other ones are out there, but it seems to be a formula I like. Yeah, it's inspired. It was a great way to end the movie. Yeah. You can cherry pick and take which one you like. So if you're rooting for Rob Lowe, you, you got what you wanted. Was anyone rooting for Rob Lowe? Rob Lowe's mother was. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Chad, you mentioned before not being a huge fan of the sketches of Wayne's World on Saturday Night Live. Explain how this movie wasn't more sketches or how does this convert to a movie? I mentioned to Russell while I was uh, kind of debating the show and texting him why I was nervous. It's like this, the sketches kind of remind me of Napoleon Dynamite where it's just this this awkward tension on stage. And I, I do not enjoy Napoleon dynamite. I will duck whatever comments you throw at me. <laughs> I don't enjoy that movie. I've watched it multiple times. It doesn't matter. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, so I was, I was terrified that it was going to be that for an hour and a half. And I was going to say two stars to be nice, but, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't, it, it was just this charming kind of, I don't know how to describe it. They just, they just have a natural presence that I, I enjoyed watching the entire time. And I had fun along with them. And it, it didn't focus too much on their awkward show. Mm. Not not at all. John, so uh, this is a movie more about, I guess you could say, friendship and dreams, uh, making them come true. When you saw this, were you familiar with the sketches beforehand? And were you aware that like as you got into this, this thing is going to take on a whole other life of its own? I was aware of the sketches because in the lead up to the movie coming out, there was, there was just a lot of promotion out there. So... I, I did know about it, but I, I wasn't able to watch SNL at that point. I wasn't really old enough to stay up late as much as I would have liked to. I, I wasn't as familiar with the sketches as as a lot of people were going into it. But I did know the Wayne character from when it was on Canadian television before SNL. So I kind of knew, uh, you know, what Wayne's deal was already. I was familiar with that, but I, I didn't really understand the dynamic between Wayne and Garth. I just knew I liked Dana Carvey. I knew that SNL was cool and someday I was going to get to start watching it. And I really wanted to see this breakout sketch that had been all over media that everyone was starting to quote. I really wanted to know what, what was going on, what, what made this movie so special. It certainly didn't disappoint in that regard. Going down the rabbit hole, what is Wayne's world like without Garth? I didn't even know this was a thing. Yeah, so Wayne Campbell, he started out as a character that Mike Myers did in Toronto at Second City. And CBC, we have something like the BBC, like a, a national television station across Canada. His character, Wayne, he parlayed that into a recurring sketch on uh, kind of like a, a rock talk show that CBC hosted in the, the late 80s. And it was called Wayne's Power Minute. It didn't really have the same format. It wasn't like him on a couch uh, doing these jokes. It was kind of him out and about sort of commenting on culture and just the scene. But it was the Wayne character. You know, same hat, same wig, same black shirt. It, it, it was all there. So 
I kind of knew that. And that's why it was even like more intriguing that Wayne that I knew from a few years prior on CBC had kind of made it to the big leagues. And not only was it this breakout SNL thing that I really wanted to know more about, uh, it had Dana Carvey. And now it was also this big movie that everyone's like talking about that I haven't had a chance to see yet. So I had all sorts of incentive and background to really dig this movie when it came out. Wow, that's that's amazing. I didn't I, I knew I had read that he had come up with the character a long mm-hmm. time before the show, but I certainly didn't realize that he had any exposure with yeah. it. And that's, yeah. that's very cool. So thanks for that uh, Canadian perspective on that. We didn't get that down here. And if we did, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't come across it. So yeah, I don't think you, you guys had it down there. It wasn't, it wasn't something that was syndicated or anything. So Chad, why don't you give us a quick rundown of the cast so we know who our players are. First, we have Mike Myers. He's playing Wayne Campbell. You might know him from Austin Powers or the Shrek movies as the voice. Or if you're really unfortunate, the cat in the hat and the love guru. Ooh! Those happened. Blow, blow. <laughs> Dana Carvey. He plays Wayne's best friend, Garth Alger. He's in Halloween 2, Little Nicky, Master of Disguise. My favorite is the Herbert Walker Bush impersonation. Oh, yeah. Tia Carrera. She plays Cassandra Wong, the love interest of Wayne. Schwing. She is the voice of Nani, my favorite uh, Lilo and Stitch. That's the older sister. Oh, did not know that. More known for a musical career. She has the album's dream, Ikena. There's Rob Lowe. He plays the scumbag executive, <laughs> like he does just about every time. Guy Lafranc in Super Troopers 2. Brothers and Sisters, West Wing. Uh, Laura Flynn Boyle. She is Garsek's girlfriend, Stacy. She's from Poltergeist 3. <laughs> Twin Peaks as well. Yes. And The Rookie. There's Brian Doyle Murphy. He plays Noah Vanderhoof. Ooh, got to stop you right there. Brian Doyle Murray, Murray brother yeah. of Bill Murray. <laughs> we got to give him his due. Yeah. SNL alum. Yeah, I said Murphy, didn't I? It's right in front of me, too. <laughs> I did not know he was the brother of Bill Bill Murray, but he explains a lot of his casting. <laughs> his uh, Caddyshack, um, he winds up in Ghostbusters too. He's Buster Green in Groundhog Day. They overlap a lot. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Kurt Fuller, I have to mention because I'm a big psych fan. He he plays Russell Finley. He's the director of Ben's TV shows, but he's the coroner in Psych. Woody. Last for me was Ed O'Neill. He plays Glenn, the manager of the restaurant. Obviously, Al from Married with Children, also Modern Family. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I didn't realize this. I was uh, watching the DVD commentary. Ed O'Neill's got a Shakespearean uh, acting background, even though we know him mostly for, you know, married with children. Scratching himself. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. But it really lends itself to all these little monologues that they give him wherever he's going deep on, you know, the, the cold, harsh reality of his murderous <laughs> rage. Like he really uh, gives quite the performance. So you, you kind of get the sense that maybe he does have some classical training. Yeah, yeah. So, he, I mean, he's cashing those checks. Don't feel bad for him, but he kind of got typecast. <laughs> yeah, but he did okay for himself. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to be sympathetic. I'm sure he's fine with it. So one cool thing that I saw was that Rob Lowe had, uh, I guess, crossed paths with both Mike and Dana when they were on the show for Saturday Night Live. And mm-hmm. uh, they got to see his versatility and they got to like him there. And so they, when it came time for this, Rob Lowe was a guy that they wanted to bring in. And it was kind of interesting. He talked about how... As he worked throughout the process, like he came to really like Garth and Wayne. He ended up having this enthusiasm for them. He came from a small town in Dayton, Ohio, and it was something that better fit for him than he actually realized. Yeah, you might not have like Parks and Rec version of Rob Lowe if he didn't kind of cut his teeth on Wayne's World. Yeah, he said it sparked his love and recognition that he could do comedy. Beware internet, even though everything on the internet is true. It's always Uh, true. (laughs) This is what I read was uh, Lauren Michaels actually advised on calling up Rob Lowe because they thought they could get him cheap. 
Yeah. Uh, he just have that sex tape scandal. So they're like, hey, <laughs> we can get this guy cheap, kind of like Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man situation. Which is weird because now, like, if you do have a sex tape, it seems to, like, get you more exposure and, like, yeah. it, like it gets your name out there. Only like, if you're Kim Kardashian. Oops, I accidentally leaked this. <laughs> I mean, how's Ray J doing? Maybe we should leak a sex tape. Our numbers will go off the charts. Uh, <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with this. Dead radio silence. <laughs> Not at all. I'll steer into that. Tia Carrera. Uh, this is somebody who I wondered why we didn't see more of. She's she's pretty strong as a female actor. And I kind of sit there and I think, man, she came along just a little too soon. I could see her taking a strong female protagonist role, getting more of a load. She was Relic Hunter. She had a series for quite a while. This was unbeknownst to me, but I, I honestly, I could see her doing like a superhero role or like wielding a gun or like, you know, being like the smart leader type role in a, in a movie. So. Opposite direction of what you're talking about. But she actually turned down Baywatch to do this role. Well, yeah. I, yeah, I could see her She that. did have a few years, though, where... You know, she she had some heat. It hasn't lingered, but she had a few good years, definitely, and a few good roles in, in that vein of action hero type stuff. Uh, she did okay, but yeah, we don't don't see much of her anymore. Yeah, and I think that's that's unfortunate. I do, like I said, uh, I remember I remember for sure she's in Rising Sun with Sean Connery and Wesley right. Snipes. That's yep. a Michael Crichton book. She's somebody I'm surprised we don't see more of. Uh, Mike Myers, you mentioned, John, that you weren't necessarily as big of a fan of Mike Myers before. Does this movie change that for you? I think I would have been a bigger fan of Mike Myers if I'd already started watching SNL. I kind of started watching SNL because of all of the buzz around Wayne's World. I knew what SNL was. I knew that I kind of already liked the people that were coming out of it, but I, I just wasn't tapped into it. So I wasn't seeing Mike Myers on a weekly basis, and I knew Dana Carvey because I'd seen a lot of his movies. It wasn't until I made the connection that, oh, Mike Myers is the guy from Wayne's Power Minute. And, oh, yeah, that's right. Okay, so he's on SNL, and okay, now he's in this movie. I very quickly became a Mike Myers fan after Wayne's World came out, but I just didn't have as much context for him as I did for Dana Carvey. That's why, going into it, Dana Carvey was more of a draw for me. And you're right. Dana was probably a bigger personality, certainly, on the show at this point. Mm. And that actually did not sit well with Mike Myers at all, (laughs) Uh, especially when they were making this movie. He wasn't really on board with even having Dana Carvey be part of it. Mike's a a guy that has a vision and very attention to detail. I mean, you can see where this leads his movie career later with whether it be So I Married an Axe Murder or Austin Powers. You can see where this is the gateway for him to go deeper. But he Mm -hmm. takes more control with those other projects going forward. Yeah, the the problem with uh, being very capable and kind of being self-assured in what you find funny is it's kind of hard to relinquish some of that control or collaborate. So he he doesn't have the best reputation. That's kind of why you don't see as much of him anymore is because he's kind of shot himself in the foot by always wanting to sort of be in total control of the the vehicles that he's in. But at this point in his career, he couldn't quite do that. And I think it may have saved the movie. I think if he'd had more sway over it, we probably would have had a very different version of this movie. That's fair. And I think, Chad, is it is it a good thing? Like when you get so big that nobody tells you no, say like George Lucas, for instance? <laughs> I knew you'd bring that up. No, no, it is not. You get George R. Binks. So it do, and it always does help to have somebody push against you. Yeah, you're right. And later on in his career, I, I assume that we'd see less of him because he's cashed some really big checks for Shrek movies. <laughs> sure, let's go with that. <laughs> Had nothing to do with the Jessica Alba movie. Well, I don't know. I mean, like I said, I, I'm pretty sure if he if he said I want to make Austin Powers four, or if he said I want to do another movie right they now, are. I'm sure I'm they sure. are making Austin Powers four. I'm excited. If this is so long rumored, I I don't know if it's true or not. I it hope needs it to is. happen. Yeah, you just keep saying it until you breathe it into existence. So let, let's. let's Let's go with that. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, Dana Carvey, he's a really important part of Wayne's World. To me, I can't imagine it without him. And, I, you know, you said that it started without him, but uh, it's interesting. Dana talked about how on the actual sketches that Mike wanted to 
create this character to play off of him and that they became this duo on the show. And Garth's character is pretty much just basically designed to worship his best friend, (laughs) which is a kind of a strange relationship, but uh, somehow it works really well. I don't believe it was Mike's idea to create a sidekick. I believe it was um, the Turners who co-wrote with Mike Myers that helped develop the Wayne character into Wayne's world because he was just bringing it as, you know, here's the shtick I do. Here's this character. Here's kind of how he carries himself and what he's into. And then they had to, you know, build a world for Wayne around it. And they realized very early on that they needed something for Wayne to play off of for it to be funny. So Garth became an, an obvious necessity. And Mike Myers was okay with it on SNL. It's just when they were parlaying it into a movie, in Mike Myers' mind, it's all about Wayne. You know, Wayne was the original character that he's been doing for the better part of a decade. Sure, Garth worked on SNL when we were doing three-minute sketches, but what does that have to do with this movie that I want to do? So that's kind of where he wasn't necessarily gung-ho about continuing to share the limelight with someone who was more established in comedy and in movies that really was going to be the bigger draw, the bigger headline than him. So there was a bit of ego at play there, but yeah, at, at SNL, there was there was no issue prior to the movie. It's this, and that's unfortunate because, and, and luckily that doesn't come across, they, the chemistry does seem strong, at least in the movie. Oh yeah, no, it, it, it's a fantastic duo. Like it, it is a, a classic movie pair up and you wouldn't know that there was as much drama and just, you know, bad blood between them, even during the production. Because yeah, they're, at the end of the day, they're still pros, especially Dana Carvey. He, he just came to play and he did his best no matter, you know, how petty Mike Myers may have been in the moment. I have a hard time, again, uh, just through his stand-up or through interviews, Dana seems so likable. I have yeah. a hard time seeing anybody having a hard time getting along with that guy. Yeah, I, and I don't think Mike Myers was having trouble getting along with Dana. I think Mike Myers was having trouble getting along with his own ego. Uh, I think it just really was. Well, actually, in all fairness, Mike Myers was going through some family drama at the same time. His dad was very sick, so he probably had lots of reasons to maybe be a little prickly, but it wasn't his best showing. It wasn't, he wasn't putting his best foot forward, and uh, fortunately, you know, Dana Carvey was enough of a professional that he never let that derail the production. And we also have the on-screen debut of Chris Farley. It's it's a small part, mm-hmm. but it's still worth mentioning. Yeah, it's it's still poignant to see him, you know, considering how all that played out. Uh, yeah. A strange amount of information. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, Lauren Michaels is the producer. He's bringing this all together, and Penelope Spheres is in charge of this movie. She's your director. Uh, Chad, what do we think about Penelope Spheres? I liked her. I, I read up on some of the influence she, she had on this movie. There were a lot of things that she insisted would be funny that even Mike Myers was like, yeah, that's that's not funny. I don't get it. The cameo from uh, Robert Patrick, the T-1000 from T2. Mm-hmm. He's Mike Myers is like, that's not funny. And it wound up being one of the bigger laughs in the movie. And it's something that Robert Patrick still gets to this day. Have you seen mm-hmm. this child? <laughs> so, so, but yeah, yeah. So she, she had a lot of great input here. And she comes away. She didn't do Wayne's World 2. She feels a little smug about it, but yeah, <laughs> she did a great job. Yeah, I, I think she did. And as you mentioned, John, uh, she's got a lot to bring together with, with, with it, with some egos, and as well as converting this thing that exists on TV to an hour and a half long movie. So uh, yeah. what did you think about her job as a director? Uh, well, you're right that she had quite the balancing act. Any director has to know how to manage <laughs> big personalities on set. So obviously, you know, she she had her fair share of that kind of stuff going on. But I, honestly, I I think that, she did a brilliant job on this, and I, I'm, I don't know who could have possibly pulled this off with more aplomb. She took a, a script that was obviously funny. It was obviously a winning script, but that's, that's only the first step. You still need to know how to block these scenes, how to shoot them, how to pace them, and how to edit them in such a way that you're 
accentuating the jokes and really, you know, hitting them hard. And uh, not everyone has a knack for that. And as I go back and watch this with grown up eyes now, uh, I'm amazed to see just how much craft and, and just how perfectly realized so many of the little set pieces in the movie are. And there's very few people that know how to edit a, a movie for maximum comedic impact. And I, I thought she did a, an absolutely brilliant job. I would agree. And there's not a lot of things that you want to cut out of this. There's not a lot mm-hmm. of fluff. Around. Yeah, no, it's it's tight. It's absolutely tight. What I think another thing that adds to how impressive it is, this thing was made in 34 days. Wow. <laughs> yep. She was picked uh, largely because she could move quickly. She had that ability to, she had a reputation for being able to get in, do what you needed to do, move on, get done. And she still found time as a director. Uh, if you watch the commentary on this, she talks about how she would have to shoot things three times frequently because Dana Mm -hmm. would have a strong feeling. So I'd have to shoot it Mike's way. I'd have to shoot it Dana's way. And then I'd have to shoot it my way. (laughs) And then we'd go and she says, I still had the ability to have the final decision in the end and it all worked out for me. But she also impressed upon the point that it wasn't always her idea that she picked. Oftentimes she would take Mike's idea or she would take Dana's idea. And to John's point here, she did such a good job of knowing the right angle to take with it because when it all comes together, I don't feel like it's, your turn, my turn, his turn. Mm-hmm. It feels cohesive. Yeah, yeah there, it's very organic. There were very few things that just felt like, oh, this was clearly Mike Myers' idea or just fell flat. Yeah. yeah. And there are other moments, too, where she, as a director, and you'll see this with really great comedies, uh, the directors don't control their actors too, too much. Like, if you come in and you're just, like, saying, stick to the script, these comedies don't tend to have those really sparkling moments in them. And so she just kept the camera rolling a lot of the times. And so sometimes Mike Myers or Dana would just be riffing. And Mm. next thing you know that that can build into a joke. And that's such a big part of what this final product is. So like, like you mentioned earlier, John, the the line of like cream of some young guy, like that's just Mike Myers screwing around. And <laughs> right. Like, and they thought it was funny. And then like, Hey, let's do this. Like, let's set it up here. And she, she knew that that was really funny. So she put a big pause in there uh, so yeah. that people could like crack up in the theater while they like had that moment. That's really good comedy directing when you mm-hmm. can slow down and do that. I don't know on the live show, John, do you get a sense of, when they write these sketches, how much of it is them riffing throughout the week as they construct these sketches or at dress rehearsal, and then they have to do it live? So riffing during the week? Absolutely. You know, the the sketches come together through a process of like nose to the grindstone writing sessions, all night writing sessions, but they're continually refined right up till the moment of dress rehearsal. And then actually even afterwards, you know, they're still doing rewrites right up between dress rehearsal and the live show. So there's always room to punch something up and keep evolving it. And there's lots of anecdotes that come out of people at SNL about how They've got a sketch. They know there's something there. You know, they, they, there's a kernel of something, but they just can't quite tap into it. They just haven't quite figured it out. And it's literally minutes before they're going on live that they crack it and they do like a really uh, frantic rewrite to try and pull it together. And sometimes those are the most brilliant things that catch on and become, you know, part of uh, our culture. I don't know if you guys are aware of David S. Pumpkins, the, <laughs> the Tom Hanks um, quizzical little sketch from a few years back. Uh, that was one of those where the the guys who were working on that, uh, Mikey Day and Streeter Seidel, they knew that they had a funny visual and a funny song, but they just couldn't quite figure out what the joke was or what the character was to underpin it. And Tom Hanks was trying to be a team player and trying to explore it with them and figure it out. And it literally was on the floor as they're setting up for the show that 
uh, Tom Hanks comes back and says, I, I think I got this. And, and they, they really lock it down and figured out what it had to be. So that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I think having that kind of a furtive environment is what informs these players to be able to uh, tap into their, their improv background and their ability to riff and their ability to try and find the funny in the moment and bring that to the screen. You hear a lot about some of the, the best comedies, how kind of like you were saying, they leave the camera running and they give the actors a chance to do something inspired. They, they try to lock it down with the dialogue as written, but they always try to have a safety. They try to have something else that if the stars align and something really great happens, they don't want to miss it. They want to make sure it's running. So that improv nature of comedy filmmaking is it's an art form in and of itself. I think there's a reason why a lot of the SNL alums perhaps come out of that then with that background of being able to drill and to put together something funny like that yeah, in a absolutely. week. And then that, that serves them well in the movie world, particularly with a comedy. So yeah, it's a boot camp, Absolutely. But uh, they get a benefit here. Like again, Penelope comes back behind them. Like uh, that great line where like Garth's like, you ever see Bugs Bunny dressed as a girl? <laughs> and then like Wayne's like, <laughs> no, no. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> that actually is two completely separate conversations. Penelope right. is taking Garth saying that. And then Mike's absolutely laughing really hard at something else. Mm-hmm. And so she pieces together this conversation between the two mm-hmm. of them. As we move forward, I just, I really want to give a big tip of the hat. This is a big part. I mean, Mike's vision is clearly a big part of this, but also this is a skillful director that shouldn't go uh, overlooked just because it's yeah. a silly comedy. There's a lot of care that was taken in the edit, and you do see that uh, in like that scene on on the the car. Look at the scene where Wayne is unveiling his ability to talk in Cassandra's language, and they have to have everything timed to the subtitles so that they can actually use the subtitles as a running gag where they say something very curt in Cantonese, but it takes five minutes worth of subtitles to express it. <laughs> Little things like that. Th- just think of the editing challenges involved in making that play without it becoming you know, too labored and the joke kind of thudding. And then you're stuck in that scene for another two minutes. Like imagine how many ways that could go wrong if you didn't play it just right. And they nailed it. They absolutely nailed it. Chad, do you feel like you're in small town America in this? Absolutely. <laughs> They're high-fiving. Everyone seems to know Wayne and Garth. They're like local celebrities. So yeah, really tiny town if those are your celebrities. It's true. Uh, that's a good point. I didn't think about how well known they are in town. They get out of a car and they get they act like the Beatles just landed at the airport. Like <laughs> it's interesting. So many people come up to the director Penelope and they they will say that you know I know that donut shop and she's like, well, it's in Los Angeles and it was a flower shop and <laughs> it doesn't know, exist. It, yeah, it doesn't exist. Or like people will be like, I know that I know all those places in town that you shot and again. It's it's not in Aurora, even though right. uh, people will <clears throat> swear that it is. The stack of cars though is an actual thing in Aurora. That's some stock footage. So, <laughs> so if you, if you are going to say like, man, I know that from Aurora, the stack of cars is right. John, how important is it in this movie that we have this small town environment? Well, I think it's one of the characters, obviously like the fact that it is kind of quintessential Midwest suburbs that tells you everything you need to know about Wayne and Garth. Like these guys are not hardcore but they're just super enthusiastic about things that are hardcore. And that's so much of their character. Like, you know, they, they, they kind of play the part and they, they love the scene, but these are really like timid, emotional guys at their core. You know, they, they were raised in comfort. You can see it, you know, they're playing hockey on the street out front of their, uh, you know, suburban low traffic, uh, cul-de-sac house. You get a very clear picture of where these guys are from and how they're kind of indulged a bit that they can actually have this show in their basement and their parents just kind of steer clear of them. It, it has a, a very true sensibility about how a lot of 
people are kind of raised in, in the Midwest, you know, a city adjacent, but not really like in the urban environment. It's just one more thing that plays very true. And fun fact for anyone who cares about the origins of, of the Wayne character, Aurora is a stand-in for Scarborough, which is a suburb of Toronto, which has that same basic aesthetic. It's not posh. It's not you know, upper class, but it's very comfortable and it's very sprawling and kids are kind of just free to roam and you just get all that, you know, with, with Aurora in the movie. Yeah. Again, Chad and I, we grew up in Charleston, West Virginia, and it's, it's not, it's certainly not a major metropolitan. <laughs> no. Right. And so there's a little part of me that I also see in this that uh, I guess you could call it small town dreams. You see in that uh, there's a, mm. there's that sense of I'm famous. I've got this TV show. And like, you know, <laughs> it is kind of one of those things. Like if you see the weatherman in the grocery store, it's like, oh, my gosh, it's like Tony Cavalier. He's like a celebrity. So, oh, yeah, it's yes. a world unto itself. Yeah, yes. <laughs> every it's a smaller stakes version of, you know, the, the big city, you know, afar off that everyone aspires to. But yeah, the day to day existence is is a little bit more mundane and a little more attainable, right? Like you can achieve celebrity from your basement. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it just, again, makes everything about the movie a little bit more. You know, just whimsical and fun and lighthearted. The wardrobe and the movie, Garth always has the band shirt on. And then mm-hmm. Wayne has this blank slate black shirt. I've always wondered this about the character. And you said, John, he's had this for a long time. This is part of the uniform. That goes right right back to CBC. Yeah. I got to wonder, like, uh, why is why is Wayne does not he does not appear to be the same level of metalhead that Garth is? Yeah, I don't know. I, I think <laughs> my, my hunch is if you know anything about second city or any of the other kind of like improv sketch review theaters that give birth to performers like Mike Myers. It's really kind of homespun in a lot of ways. You're workshopping things. And so if you, if you're trying to realize a character and trying to workshop a character and, you know, really get to the core of who they are, you take the props that are in the boxes, you know, behind the stage and you, you work with them. So my hunch is that he probably just didn't have any more flamboyant outfit to to really use to realize the character. And once he got accustomed to probably the the black shirt that he was comfortable wearing, you know, as a kid growing up in, in Scarborough, I, I think that just probably felt true and comfortable and that just helped him to get in the character. So I, I really think it was probably a lack of options that led to Wayne's mundane outfit. But by the time they get to SNL, you know, they've got a fabulous wardrobe department and a, a wig shop and, you know, they can get you whatever you want. So when they're trying to explore what his sidekick's going to be, they can definitely go way more over the top with it. And so you see Garth's look is a lot more focused and uh, it, it speaks a lot more about who he is than Wayne's does. In my mind, I always just kind of mentally insert Metallica on his t-shirt. It just strikes <laughs> yeah. me as a Metallica t-shirt. And if he'd had a Metallica t-shirt back in Toronto, it probably would have become synonymous with the character. Again, it just probably was a lack of options. Gotta ask, what do you think about the blue 76 AMC Pacer? Is this a ride that you would want to have, Chad? It's a ride I could have afforded with the jobs they were working, but Tia Carrera seemed okay with it. it it's true. It came with an end or a, a CD player mounted on the dash, and she was <laughs> impressed. Mm-hmm. John, does your car have a red licorice dispenser in it? I wish. Well, I don't have Wayne and Garth money. Like Those were... Um, uh, aftermarket upgrades when Wayne came into his money and he's burning through it like it's going out of style. So uh, I can't can't say as I've ever blinged out a car the way that they chose to, but I respect the Mirthmobile and I, I love that, like Aurora, this is another thing that is just pitch perfect. 
what kind of a car would Wayne and Garth drive? Someone sat down to have that conversation and they nailed it. Of course, it's going to be underwhelming. It's going to be cramped. They're going to fit their entire entourage in it. They're going to think it's just the greatest thing since sliced bread because it can get them out of the house and get them down to the party. So like it just, again, says so much about where these characters are coming from that <laughs> it just more inspired direction or more inspired development of the movie. I loved it. The Mirthmobile. It's great. <laughs> One thing that I really... I think is central throughout Wayne's world, both as a sketch and as a movie is their enthusiasm and love for music. And mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting tie that binds this, uh, whether it be an Alice Cooper appearance, jamming out in the car, Wayne falls in love with a rock star. Isn't it interesting, Chad, that what role do you see the music in this movie playing? Oh, it was central for me. It was just a great soundtrack from Bohemian Rhapsody being Mike Myers, basically said, I will quit if you don't do Bohemian Rhapsody. I know Dana Carvey said it gave him migraine headaches because they had to shoot that headbanging scene for like four or five hours. Mike Myers said he wasn't sure it was going to be funny. Oh my goodness, if that wasn't funny, the pain they put themselves through. (laughs) You know, Garth dancing to Foxy Lady is just hilarious. (laughs) And the fact it's Foxy Lady and he's pantomiming ears. Uh, Alice Cooper stepping up. My goodness, Alice Cooper. Even him suggesting Feed My Frankenstein instead of, you know, doing something like No More Mr. Nice Guy or uh, one of his more famous songs. School's Out for Summer. Yes. Yeah. Um, Tia Carrera stepping up, singing Ballroom Blitz and uh, Why You Want to Break My Heart. And Gary Wright re-recording Dreamweaver for this movie, just for those sequences. I I love that everyone was so intricately involved. The music on this is is definitely on point. John, this is a revival of Bohemian Rhapsody in some ways. Tell tell mm-hmm. us what what Bohemian Rhapsody in particular does for Wayne's World. It does lots for Wayne's World. It, it did a lot for Queen too. Yes, you know, they did. they sold more than a few albums after this movie came out. I owned this soundtrack and it held up, and I think it still kind of holds up. Like I can still put it on, and it, it sets a, a tone. Like it, it does kind of transport me back to when Wayne's World was the thing. So I have a lot of affection for the the music choices that they made. Not the least of which was Bohemian Rhapsody, and just to kind of drive home kind of how big Bohemian Rhapsody got because of this particular scene. When I was in, let's say grade five, we would have, you know, lame, like school auditorium dances. And I remember one time they had our version of MTV up in Canada. We call it much music. They used to go around to schools and they do these video dances and it was supposed to be like this awesome event. It turns out it's just as lame as a regular dance. Cause it doesn't matter how big the, the projector is. The fifth grade kids don't really mingle that way. Um, but nonetheless, they kind of launched these like video music parties based on, or on the back of Bohemian Rhapsody. Like that was how they sold them to the schools because that was like such a big thing that like, if you could like get the kids up like headbanging the way that Wayne and Garth did and they've got on this big projector, that was going to be like the thing that made your cheesy school party a success. And they brought one of these to our school and they opened it up with Bohemian Rhapsody and all the kids loved it. And there was just like mass cheering and everyone like totally got into it. And then the kids separate to the separate sides of the gym and it's just like sits that way for the next two hours. But th- that song had at the time had the ability to get everyone on the same page like that. It, it just was something that just cut through the culture for some reason. I can't imagine a world like who hasn't had that experience of whoever you're in a car, room, whatever, Bohemian Rhapsody comes yeah. on and people start singing. It just We have it now, but we kind of have it because we're playing out that scene in a lot of ways. Like 
Mike Myers said that, uh, you know, the original impetus of that was, you know, him cruising around in their lame little car, you know, back when he was a kid, you know, up to no good. So people have that experience, but connecting it with a song as epic as Bohemian Rhapsody and just like how over the top they were able to go with it. That's what like really just painted that beautiful picture of that moment that we have in our youth when we're just out cruising with our friends and we think we're on top of the world. And then like a great song comes on the radio and it just like consumes you and everybody's like into it. That became the anthem that paints that picture for a whole generation now. And that's, that's no small feat for a movie to be able to do that and for uh, it to just find the exact right song that lingers, that now has become, again, just part of the culture. You're absolutely right. Some of the producers wanted Guns N' Roses to be played in the car instead. And I can't, I, I, I would no. not want to do that. So. <laughs> no, it, it had to be Bohemian Rhapsody. It was the right call. And I'm glad that they stuck to their guns. <laughs> it's interesting, fun fact here, that Bohemian Rhapsody hits number nine on the charts when it gets its first run. After mm-hmm. Wayne's World, and keep in mind, Freddie Mercury's death is also uh, unfortunately yeah. along the same time period. But the two things combined uh, lead Bohemian Rhapsody to go number two on the U.S. charts in yeah. 1992. So that's that's pretty cool that this movie helped this song grow into it. I mean, is it fair to say this might be one of the 10 greatest songs of rock and roll history? And Freddie, Freddie got to see a rough cut and he loved it. Yes, that is cool. Yeah, people regard it as one of the greatest written songs of all time now, but back during its original run, like mid-70s, right around 75, 76, it was a hit in Britain, but yeah, it didn't really land over here the way that some of Queen's later songs did. So it was a a song that was really underappreciated up to this point. It's probably why they could get it at a reasonable enough, you know, uh, licensing rate to be able to put it in the movie. But yeah, you wouldn't be able to pay for it now. I do imagine that their heads are hurting because it was interesting. Mike Myers was saying like, this isn't funny. We shouldn't do this. I mean, can we please stop for the love of God? And she was like, keep banging your head and I'll get you a lot of aspirin. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going to hurl, hurl into this. You know, they did a scene where he does actually throw up in front of the uh, donut shop and Lauren Michaels just thought it's not funny to show all that. And it's just too gross. And so they cut that out of there. Now, I think it's better to leave you wondering, right? Because he's always, his, you always see him like get nauseated in the moment and like his cheeks kind of like puff up like, oh, here it comes. And he's just barely holding it together. So actually in a weird way, it adds a little bit of tension to that scene. The fact that, you know, he, he is able to keep it together. So uh, I think the no honk guarantee is, is fitting. I, I, I think that they played it out properly. Another thing that is important to think about with the music on this is Penelope Ferris. She is coming from a documentary world where she has covered the heavy metal scene. I believe mm-hmm. it's called The Decline of Western Civilization. Yep. Yeah, yeah, she's done more than one of them. So she's coming with that knowledge of who the metalheads are. She understands the culture of who's in the Gaswork concert. Right. And she also understands this world that is kind of that centralizing thing that binds these metalheads, how they relish and worship the equipment. Yeah. Of like this guitar that, oh, it will be mine. <laughs> it will be. That sensibility of that music scene is really important and it plays throughout this as well as it also is a great opener for the movie. You get a feel for this town as they drive around it. Again, that that like small town hero kind of feel. Uh, mm-hmm. And listening to this epic huge song while the rest of the country who might be from like, you know, Denver, Los Angeles, Boston, wherever might be like, this is a sad town. But, you know, <gasps> to them, this is this is a good night. Well, they're, they're, they're the kings of their scene. So, yeah, it's all working for them. Absolutely. Alice Cooper, the knowledgeable Alice Cooper. John, did this did you enjoy the Alice Cooper scene? I did. This is something that's lifted right out of the SNL sketches. 
one of the the gags that they would have if they brought on an actual celebrity onto the the Wayne's World couch is that the celebrities would say something very profound and unexpected. So it, it is cool that they worked it in. Uh, it's even cooler that he was so game, you know, considering that at least the lore says that they kind of sprung it on him. He just thought that he was going there to do kind of like a mock performance as, as sort of a background player and that, you know, he might have a line or two and then they give him this you know, complicated historical monologue, you know, about the Indian culture in in that region. <laughs> That's a lot to drop on someone who who isn't really a trained actor, but you know, Alice Cooper, he rallied, he, and he, he delivered it all, you know, just really, really well. Like that, that scene holds together because his deadpan, his sincerity in interacting with them, it just really underscores like how uncomfortable and ridiculous they are in the moment. The fact that he's such a grounded, reasonable person, though he's all decked out in his, you know, like, <laughs> satanic garb yes. um it just all the all the collision all the contrast in that scene it just plays perfectly and it all hinges on his ability to hold that together and be that straight man and yeah he nailed it chad as a as a man of a history background did the fact checking turn out about the french missionaries in the 1600s that part but uh you know i did not get my master's in milwaukee history okay so uh <laughs> The fact he's able to just deadpan spit out, I think one of the most interesting aspects of Milwaukee <laughs> is it's the only city to elect three socialist mayors. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, Does this guy know how to party or what? <laughs> apropos of nothing. And I actually yeah. bought that Alice Cooper would know this. He delivered it with such authority. I was like, huh, he knows this. He does have a reputation for being, you know, like a Renaissance man, like being a, a guy that just kind of knows his stuff. Yeah, well, for a guy that sings No More Mr. Nice Guy, he actually is a really nice guy. <laughs> there you go. And you can't beat the uh, time when he tells them to, you, know, you guys, why don't you hang out with us? And they're like, <laughs> no, we're not worthy. He says he still gets that and he still gestures like to kiss the ring. Yeah, like the queen, the queen. Yes, kiss my ring. What a fun scene. And it could have gone wrong in so many ways. Like if Alice Cooper didn't just happen to have the personality where he could sell that material, it could have gone in a totally different direction. I'd, again, I think this is a credit to the directing and the editing too in just how nicely these scenes flower. I want to see the unedited portion though because Alice Cooper says it went on for like five, six minutes where they keep saying ridiculous things or they're bowing and <laughs> Like I, it might... Might be a little long in the tooth, but I kind of want to see like a minute or two of that because they were just trying to make him laugh and he would <laughs> not do it. Way to not break Alice Cooper. Uh, so some people that you might not think of being musicians, Dana Carvey actually does his drum solo in mm -hmm. the store. And he says that I'm, I'd be terrible by musician standards, but by regular people standards or by like comedian standards, people are like, oh, you're good. Yeah, that really stuck out to me. I was like, wait a minute. He's actually playing that. That's not dubbed over. Yeah, he's done that bit a few times. He had his own sketch show for a while, and sometimes he would do that as a bit where he'd just like kind of run into the audience and there'd be a drum kit like at the back of the, the studio, and uh, he'd do that same, but basically the exact same performance from Wayne's World. Uh, as much as, as he plays some sedate characters, he's kind of a little manic and a little sort of hyperactive naturally, and you can kind of see that <laughs> aiding him in his drum playing. He's, he can definitely wail. I like to play... <laughs> Tia Carrera does a lot of her own vocals as well, doing Fire and uh, Ballroom Blitz. She's won more Grammys than Alice Cooper. Really? I did yes. not know that. <laughs> huh. Well, there you go. That's probably part of the reason why she got this gig, is they needed someone that could really hold their own. And she already was trying to break out as a musician. Like, I, I think that, I don't know if she was as much of an established actor at this point as maybe, you know, trying to just <laughs> get whatever career hit first. 
because uh, I, I think she was in bands or something at this point. Well, it certainly is a natural fit for this role, and you can certainly right. see why Wayne falls in love with her talent uh, on the stage. But also, uh, she mentioned how thankful she was that Mike had uh, written the character specifically as Asian with the Cantonese uh, speech patterns that are in it. She said, if this was just a rock star being up on stage, she said, I would have had zero chance of getting it. But mm-hmm. because it was an Asian that had to be able to sing, that met all these different things she says sure. she's like i could get it and <laughs> yeah. so and it was it lightning struck for her i think it added to the humor too because you've got aurora illinois and there were multiple people that are speaking cantonese <laughs> right and it's just like why does everyone know this language zang <laughs> Yeah, just more flavor. There's a lot of points in this movie where when I watch it, I think they could have phoned in this scene and it still would have been passable. It still would have been good. But it seems like they took the time to really mine every scene for maximum funny. And just the idea that, okay, well, Wayne's got to have a love interest. So the immediate casting would be just, you know, whatever we think our audience is going to like, just a, a pretty blonde. Like it could have been that superficial a casting, or they could have written the character uh, as a much more shallow sort of just like cardboard cutout for his love interest. But no, they go the extra mile and then they find all these fun jokes because now they've got the language that they can riff off of and, you know, so much more. And it just makes for a better movie because it's a more well-realized character. And it just, it, it again shows how much heart and blood, sweat and tears went into trying to make this movie great at all levels. Rob Lowe said doing the Cantonese was the hardest part of the movie. He he was literally doing it in his car every day, every day on the way to the <laughs> shoot, trying to, trying to be able to do it. So it sounds smooth when he does it, he said, but it was hard to get there. And, uh, mm. but as Mike Myers said, oh, this guy's good. <laughs> John, this is a part of the show we like to call Look for This. Are there any fun facts or little hidden things that you want to uncover for us? Uh, Meatloaf was the doorman at the Gasworks, uh, if anyone Perfect. Uh, is up on their bat out of hell. Uh, Stan Makita's Donuts. That's an inside joke for Canadian viewers. Up here, we have a donut chain called Tim Horton's Donuts, which is in a lot of communities that would be similar to Aurora. It is kind of just the meeting place. It is just uh, the place where you can go and you can loiter and you only need to spend, you know, a buck 50 on a drink to be able to claim your booth for however long you want to be there. So it is a great go-to place for kids that are just, you know, wasting time. That's kind of where this came from, but because they had to shift the location from Canada to Chicago for the sake of making this sort of like us friendly for SNL, they couldn't use Tim Horton. So they created a surrogate. So they found a Chicago based hockey player and they just basically recreated the chain, you know, with a us personality instead of a Canadian hockey player. Chad, do you have any look for this moments? I do. The waitress that serves Wayne and Garth at the restaurant. Yeah. That was Mike Meyer's wife, Robin Rusin at the Whoa, time. Did not know that. Uh, n- not at the time. They did or, get married, but they weren't married when they filmed this. Yeah. yeah. 19, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Still, but yeah, there, there was, there was something going on. <laughs> yeah. You can't really tell from the movie, but Dana Carvey said he had to ice his jaw from doing the fake over mm. overbite. So after filming, he would go and he'd ice his jaw. Yeah. You can kind of see how, how jarring that crossbite is that he has to maintain. Yeah. yeah that would not be comfortable. He said the voice of Garth is based on his brother. Yes. <laughs> I feel bad for his brother. <laughs> he just uh, can't remember the exact quote that he used, but he would he definitely he definitely was emulating his brother when he was when he was saying these things. He was like, it was broken, but I fixed it now. It works. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And hammering that arm and Rob Lowe just trying. It said it was near impossible for Rob Lowe not to laugh. Wearing that space helmet and just it's like, what is he doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have one other thing. It's not really a look for this kind of thing, but people should know that Mike Myers really had to lobby hard to get Wayne's world produced on SNL. 
he submitted his first draft of the original Wayne's World sketch a few times before the producers would even let it on the pile for table read. Nobody believed in it. They really thought, okay, well, he's digging deep on crap that he brought with him from Canada and this isn't going to play. And, you know, this is a thinly drawn character and there's just nothing there. And they, they just couldn't see what it could be. And eventually they said, okay, well, we're going to produce it. You know, you've been pushing hard. We're coming up light this week. We'll let this one through. It's going to be the last sketch of night. The, the infamous like 10 to one sketch. Everybody's already shut off the TV and gone to bed. You can fill that slot. They did it. And the next morning, everyone was talking about it. But I think it's just hilarious that at one producer's whim, this may have never seen the light of day. Wow. And this whole cultural phenomenon that came from it and Mike Myers' career, it just wouldn't have happened. John, do you think that being the, the cast is you know significantly larger now than it used to be? Do you ever think that we're missing out on a Wayne's world because there are so many people there and those great ideas might get shoved out of the show? Somewhat. Yeah, the, there's an argument to be made there for sure, because the show is a much bigger production than it was in the late 80s when Mike Myers came in. It probably is harder. Every year they bring in a few new featured players into the show. And oftentimes, you know, one of them will be missing an action for the whole season just because they just can't figure out how to get anyone to produce their sketches, like to, to get on board with their vision for something. And, and you see these players come and go and it feels like a bit of a tragedy because if you know anything about them outside of SNL, sometimes they're like really funny people with really great material and just for whatever reason snl just can't get on board with them uh it is the tragedy of the show is that they have to make tough calls and they're basically writing somewhere around 30 to 50 sketches a week to whittle it down to what ends up in the show so there's a whole lot of stuff that never sees the light of day that if they had more time to fine tune it and rewrite it and draft it, they could, they could probably turn a lot of stuff into brilliant things, but the nature of the show just doesn't allow for that kind of babying of material. So yeah, a lot of stuff slips through the cracks and a lot of players do too. So I could definitely see some merit in what you're suggesting. You're right. I mean, uh, the only place I saw John Rudnitsky was on a milk carton. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, by featured player standards, John Rodnitsky had a fairly decent first year. But, yeah, even even uh, his Dirty Dancing weekend update thing couldn't, couldn't save him. Oh. Uh, yeah. And we see that every year. The most recent tragedy was Luke Knoll. Uh, and it, it happens every season. There's someone that you're going to see is on the way out. And it's it is uh, the nature of that particular beast. Well, uh, I got one more uh, look for this moment. Garth suggests that there's a special twilight zone scene where a tongue kind of hmm. like gets cut out and grows its other baby <laughs> tongues. This is not a real twilight zone. So this is, I wondered that no, not a real one. So okay. it's kind of funnier to think that Garth Algar had some kind of weird fever dream while passing out, watching the twilight zone and his own bizarre, disturbed nature conjured up <laughs> this episode. <laughs> and he actually, you know, believes it's a real episode. Um, I don't know if you, if you really want to dissect it and, and, uh, go deep on it. I, I it, it kind of does inform his character a little bit uh, if you know that context, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I guess another one on that same Garth line is th I remember watching, he he's working on a hand and uh, you know, Benjamin comes to talk to him and uh, like this robotic hand, he's got this strange apparatus on yeah. his head and he just like randomly starts beating the hand with a hammer. And you're just like, this Garth guy's really weird and like it, it's strange, but there was a side story that was cut out of this where Garth was trying to invent a killer robot to take Benjamin out because he was trying to corrupt the show. And yeah, see, yeah, you got to really read into that scene because he's got stuff like pasted to his head right in that scene. Like he's got some kind of helmet on. Yeah. yeah. So the idea is that he's trying to like 
because he's building a robot that he's controlling, you know, through this helmet, when Benjamin comes in, he's trying to suppress, you know, his, <laughs> his rage or his, you know, his, his, you know, want to lash out at this guy. And he, and it's all, you can see on his face, it's like taking all of his concentration to try and keep that, you know, contained, but you see the hand, you know, isn't cooperating. Like it's starting to bleed through. And in a minute or two, if he doesn't disable that hand, it's going to lunge for Rob Lowe's throat. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's, it's all subtext. Like they don't have to really paint that picture and like spoon feed it to you it just turns into this quizzical little moment of like what the hell is garth up to and it's so much funnier that you really have to watch it three or four times and put all the pieces together to realize there's something really dark and disturbed right under the surface with garth that very rarely bubbles up and that's why him being so meek is so funny because you see that yeah you know, given just a little bit of motivation, he he could really turn. That's right. He built a taser to take out the biggest guy in the bar. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Excuse me. I'd like to get by now. <laughs> well, it is my favorite part of the show, the superlatives. And John on uh, SNL After Party, I have to admit this. We've we've just jacked this from your show. We've straight up. By all means. This. Yeah. So why don't you give us the honor and kick us off with your MVP of Wayne's World? I like that you put in uh, parentheses here in the notes that it can be the director, the actors, support actor basically anyone the fact that it doesn't have to be someone that's on screen kind of got me thinking that as much as there's a lot of mike myers genius in here and dana carvey's genius in here i'm going with penelope spheris i think that she just she directed the hell out of it the editing is tight it elevates the material all of her framing choices and the actor direction is so sharp like look at the uh, product placement segment look at how she does the reveal with garth where she starts at his shoes and works its way up and every time you get to a new article of clothing it just reinforces like how over the top he's gone with his product placement and how aloof he is about it just how cool and casual he is and that's so out of character for garth like there's as much as you can put something of that nature on paper you still need someone with a really sharp eye to figure out how to realize that, you know, in reality. Yeah. And then just figure out how to get it all whittled down into something funny on screen. There, there was some real craftsmanship that she brought to it. And, uh, I think, I think that she knocked it out of the park. I'm glad you said that. That's a, that's a great choice. And I'm glad that she gets her dues here. Chad, what about (laughs) you? Your MVP? For me, it's Dana Carvey. Uh, I really liked what Penelope brought to the movie, but Dana Carvey was what made me stick around. His mannerisms are just perfect. He's a lot of fun. The what is going on here scenes, the the foxy lady dance, which was all improvised, <laughs> and just the eye contact there. He's he's just brilliant in every mannerism and every way he delivers his lines. It just it makes me happy. I love the Garth moment where she, uh, he comes up or, or Stacy comes up to him. It's like, what should I do? He's like, I don't know. Break up and see other people. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two seconds later, she just starts like kissing on some other guy. Uh, and he gets his dream girl at the end too. So good for him. I'm well, since nobody else said it, I have to pick Mike Myers then because without, without him, the character of Wayne Campbell doesn't come to be and sure. we don't have Wayne's world. So um, I'm going to go with Mike Myers on this one. Speaks to how strangely well done this movie is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Best Supporting Actor, John. I'm going with Dana Carvey for this simply because, well, I, I think the category says it all. He supports all of the comedy, right? Like Wayne is out in front being ridiculous, but you have to have that counterbalance. You have to have someone, you know, you have to have the yin to the yang. And he's so fully invested in his character that you, you, you forget Dana Carvey's under there. I love everything that guy does. 
<laughs> he has so many fantastic moments in this movie and he just plays them all perfectly. There's a big physical component to being guard mm. as well. Just how he stands, how he moves yeah. around stiffly. I mean, yeah, it's fully realized. When you say you forget that it's him, I, I kind of believe that in his standup, he'll pull it out a little bit and you're like, Oh my gosh, that that's yeah, there that it is. Is the same guy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. When they see, say, uh, ever see that scene in scanners where that dude's head blows up. That is the exact expression Garth is giving. And it's just <laughs> mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah, no, Dana Carvey is a genius. So it, it is kind of fun where he gets to bring just some of his uh, actual performance ability, being a great impressionist and just being able to really tap into those kind of things, like realizing, you know, that moment from Scanners and bring that out in the performance on top of what's already a very fully realized character. Just, yeah, he's great. Absolutely. Chad, who's your best supporting actor? Alice Cooper. I like it. I, I can get on board with that. This is a movie that is about music to a, a, a large extent. And I really feel like he legitimizes. He was the big music star <laughs> sure. that they get to perform. And his performance offstage is just brilliant. I did mm-hmm. not know that. <laughs> <laughs> Dana Carvey was definitely my best supporting actor, but I think John nailed it so well. So I'm going to give a nod here to Tia Carrera. She does so much for what is frequently a one-dimensional, flat female character in this. And she's really cool. She's a musician. She's talented. And she had to work the Canton- to, to get the Cantonese uh, accent as, or speak, mm-hmm. speech patterns, too, because that's not something that she came in with. I had wondered why they no. did that, because she, she does her albums in Hawaiian. Right. And, well, and she is part Hawaiian. For her, those lines were just as challenging for her. And in fact, she actually speaks in a different way. She actually speaks very clearly in your American diction, but she Mm -hmm. put this accent on so that she had a sense of being exotic in the movie. So that's not necessarily actually her. So hidden gem, John. Well, for my hidden gem, I'm going with Laura Flynn Boyle, who... (laughs) I'm so glad you said that. She is surprisingly good at being daft and psychotic at the same time and somehow managed to play it in a sympathetic way. Like you kind of feel for her just kind of getting tossed around, you know, nonchalantly by Wayne. Uh, and she's taking everything that he says to heart. And, you know, she's just a very like impressionable person, but also someone that you totally understand why you need to keep them at arm's reach because <laughs> you, you let them into your life and it's going to be drama. So like she has what five lines in the movie. And, and I feel like I know this girl or I know versions of this girl. And I, I think to be able to really just clearly paint a picture of what this character is with as little screen time as she got was really impressive. Uh, and I, I applaud it. She, she genuinely creeped me out and then also made me sympathetic for her at the same time. If you're not careful, Wayne, you're going to lose me. <laughs> <laughs> so Chad, Hidden Jim. Ed O'Neill. I loved mm. him as Glenn, who's just constantly reminiscing about how violent he wants to be. (laughs) Why is it if a man kills another man in battle, it's called heroic. Yet if a man kills in the heat of passion, it's called murder. (laughs) No, I'm with you. Ed O'Neill is my hidden gem as well. Small, small presence, but great job on this. You said it all there. So best scene, John, there's a scene near the end of the movie where Garth and his cohorts are on their heist. They're, they're trying to get the satellite and everything queued up so they can do the, the beam in to uh, the producer's car and Russell confronts them and they have kind of this standoff moment where Russell, the, the ever loyal, you know, lapdog and henchman of Benjamin <laughs> is going to foil their plan. And Garth has to talk him down and win him over and break Benjamin's control of him. And they throw in every like standoff movie cliche in the dialogue that you possibly could. And the way that Dana Carvey delivers all of that, 
is just really sincere and really funny. And then at the end of it, he tries to paint this illustration of, look, if Benjamin were an ice cream flavor, he'd be pralings <laughs> and dick. Three. Oh, hi, Russell. How's it going? Hold it right there. Hey, hey. Hey, what, what should we put in that thing? <laughs> Give me a flashlight, Russell. Give it to me. You can help us, Russell. No, I, I'm supposed to stop you. <laughs> what, what, what are you going to do? You're going to be Benjamin's monkey boy the rest of your life? Is that it? Benjamin's my friend. No. Benjamin is no one's friend. If Benjamin were an ice cream flavor, he'd be pralines and dick. It's okay! He's going to be okay. And that's what finally like flips the switch and switches Russell out of it. And then Russell becomes their loyal lapdog and, you know, aids them. I don't know what it is about that scene, but I, I just think it's brilliant. I think it's just perfect comedy, you know, cause it's informed by other movies. So you get that, you know, you get that little bit of nostalgic factor of, yes, these are true tropes and true cliches that they're playing up, but then you've got dialogue that is so quintessential Garth, like that, that has to be you know, delivered by Dana Carvey. I don't think anyone else could get away with it. And it's just fun to turn Russell. Like you never really know if he's the villain or not, but you just, you're, you're wary of him throughout the movie and, and uh, yeah, they're, they're able to, to bring him on board. And it's just, it's so fun. So fun. Yeah. And uh, Chad, what is your best scene? It's really tempting to pick Laverne and Shirley, that parody scene (laughs) that was shot for shot. Perfect. But uh, for me, it was the product placement. Uh, starting with the Doritos when Mike Myers is kind of hamming yeah. it up for the camera. Then it cuts to Garth in the Reebok. Then they go to Nuprin, which it, I don't think is a real thing, but they're like little yellow, different. <laughs> oh, I'm pretty sure that was. I, you know, maybe I'm just remembering, you know, the Wayne's World bit now, but I could swear as a kid, I remember advertisements about the little yellow, different pill that was trying to uh, distinguish itself from the aspirins and Tylenols. <laughs> yeah. But he concludes it by drinking a Pepsi. And I, yeah. I'm just like <laughs> clapping through the scene. I like it when, yeah. uh, the, again, the Reebok outfit that Garth has. It's fantastic. It's like, brilliant. It's like people don't do anything except for money. <laughs> and that's just really sad. <laughs> no, it's a great choice. And I, I don't want to be one note because I almost never pick my best shot and my best scene. But the scene is more than just the car ride. I like that opening part where we're going around town, where we see Wayne get out and we see him see his dream guitar. And we see them pick up their drunk buddy. And we see the head banging. And again, to me, I'm maybe it's just because I love this movie so much, but it's it's to me, this is like, I'm about to have a really good time. Yeah, it's great. This is a tough one. Best quote. The second time they are on the car at the airport and they're kind of having it out, right? Like all of this pent up frustration and jealousy and, you know, all, all that stuff's coming to a head and Garth finally unburdens himself. But as he's, beginning his diatribe he's drowned out by jet engines yeah and so we only get the hint of what he's actually ranting about you really pissed me off tonight garth you've never been mad at anything in your life yeah but you shouldn't have walked out on the show i mean you know i handled it okay (laughs) but you shouldn't walk out on your friend without telling him first oh so i have to run everything by you now yeah i think you have to run everything by me now what, what am I, some sort of chimp with you as always as Garth? Jim to your Marlon Perkins? You know, Benjamin had you so snowed. And you know what? He's got it for Cassandra. No way. Way. Yeah. 
Cassandra's not interested, as if. Okay, pop quiz. Cassandra is not interested in Benjamin because A, chicks think he's handsome, B, has cool car, C, has lots of cash, D, has no visible scars, E, does not live with parents. Okay, how about F, you're a gimp. You know what you can do with your pop quiz? You, you know what you can do with your show? You can take a five. Kiss your mother with that mouth? You've gone mental. I'm getting out of here, Damien. Fine, then go. I'm gone. Go then. I am. Go. I'm gone. Go then. I am. You just realized that it, it must have just been the most caustic vitriol. And because you don't get to hear it, it's like just way more fun for some reason. So my best quote is the quote we never got to hear. And, and we have to let our imagination kind of fill in the blanks of just how vulgar Garth was being there. What was the line? You kissed your mother with that mouth? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, Jen, best quote. Did you ever find Bugs Bunny attractive when he put on a dress <laughs> and played a girl bunny? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> Neither did I. I was just asking. <laughs> no, that's a great one. Uh, and I alluded to it earlier. Uh, tip my hand a little bit, but I'm definitely going to go with uh, when dealing with Alice Cooper, Garth and Wayne bowing down. We're not worthy. Yes. We're not okay. worthy. We're scum. We suck. Yep, classic Wayne and Garth. I do also, a little bit of runner-up, I have to definitely also say, uh, you know, if you're not careful, you're going to lose me. Good! We broke up two (laughs) months ago. (laughs) Get the net! (laughs) Oh, that was great. John, do you want to give everybody a reminder where we can hear more from you? Yeah, if you haven't already got your fill of SNL trivia you're welcome to check out our podcast you can find it at snlpodcast.com it's called the snl after party you can also just search for that in any podcast app of your choice we do deep dives on all new snl and uh, we cover some vintage stuff over the summer and i think it's a pretty good show i would love it if you'd check it out please check it out people so john it's the moment of truth it's the moment we've all come down to it's the climax of the show on a five-star scale less complicated grading scale than you guys have for your show um, five star scale. What do you give Wayne's World? Well, I consider this to be one of the all time great classic comedies. I think the perfect five is probably the first Ghostbusters movie. I think, uh, depending on your taste, you've probably got Caddyshack or Vacation slightly under those. And I would lump this into that category. Really great, really inspired, a product of its time, like just so perfectly captures that moment. Um, strong characters, end to end. A surprisingly brisk plot that capitalizes on all the great performance that uh, the leads can bring to it. There's so much to love in this movie that it is a near flawless comedy. But because Ghostbusters is a flawless comedy, I have to put it just one notch below there. So I'm going to ask you, are we allowed to do like half ratings like definitely four and a half is a total rating okay yeah. there you go yeah. it's a 4.5 because there is a perfect comedy in my opinion it's ghostbusters and then this is you know nipping at its heels so it's a 4.5 for me so you're tough greater than i see okay okay no because I, mean, I you love this movie and i i, I oh yeah I, you, you don't, and, and you, it, you don't it's, turn around it's, fights it's, every day of the week i see no 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 i i do not and the only reason why i don't think it is a five is because uh, Ghostbusters will always have a more special place in my heart because it really was just like the first movie that I ever like latched onto and said, Oh, 
wait a minute, this is what I like. <laughs> oh, this is the kind of person I'm going to be. I'm going to dig this kind of stuff. Like it, it formed me. And so in, in my opinion, you just, you can't touch that. The only perfect five that I will ever award will be Ghostbusters. But this is a great movie. Well, my wife, Mary approves. That's her favorite movie, Ghostbusters. So, well, there you go. Uh, Disappointed my wife. <laughs> I still, it was a rough night, John. We, we, we showed, uh, we showed Chad's wife, Sarah Ghostbusters. Cause it's, it's, it's Mary's favorite movie. I love it. And Chad also enjoys it. And Sarah's like, I've never seen it. And we're like, you must see this. And then we all, we, them. we all sat like watching her facial expressions during the movie. Like how great is oh. this going to be? Huh? And then and nothing lands. It, eh? it, it, and the lights weren't, the lights weren't on. It was a two star. Oh. for her. <laughs> oh, that's the worst. I, I hate it when I, when I think something's great and I talk it up and then I like stage a viewing, you know, specifically specifically to try and win someone over and yeah, they just, they can't get on board. And it's so, it's so hard to like sit there and watch them not enjoying it. Yeah, I've had <laughs> I, I feel, I feel for you. That's, that's a terrible experience. And I, I feel that uh, Ghostbusters deserves better. So I, I blame you guys. You should have sold it better. I know. I know. And <laughs> Hey, I have a similar story. Four of us came over from my office, all star Wars nerds. And I had, my friend from China had never seen the original trilogy and we showed them all three in one day. And uh, mm. he's just like, it's kind of slow. And like, Meh. Yeah, well, it's got that 70s pacing that doesn't, that our modern audiences that are uh, all like hopped up on Marvel movies don't, don't necessarily get. Um, but yeah, that's a tragedy. I, I've, I've done that too. I've shown some people like a new hope and you don't realize that if you didn't, if you're not remembering how excited you were as a kid, uh, it, it does have some pacing issues. Like it does take a long time to really like ramp up, which is great. You know, that's great cinema in its own right. But yeah, it's hard to get someone on board if they're just used to our modern pace of movies. I guess so. Chad. Five star scale, Wayne's World. What's it going to be? I did not expect this from this movie, but I'm going to give it four stars. I really, mm-hmm. I yes. was terrified that it was going to come on with the SNL podcast and with Russell, who holds <laughs> SNL way, way up there. I do. And say two stars. But it was charming. It was dumb, but <laughs> it was fun dumb. And I like fun dumb. So, you know, for all these reasons watch this movie it's it's a great time whether you like the skits or not yeah and Very good i'm gonna go i'm gonna go full-blown five on this i'm a little more friendly with my fives than john to me this is just a fixture that i keep coming back to the rewatchability super high i've had a great time it is part of my uh normal everyday vocabulary i i, I sometimes <laughs> stick my thumb up and go excellent and sometimes i do just say like game on like if i have to stop playing foosball <laughs> out the office and people kind of look at me like it's like what's that from like oh come on wayne's world you know and they're like oh yeah i kind of remember that so to me it's just part of that top 100 movies for me and i love sure. my comedy so much it's my favorite genre it's my comfort food just as much as chad loves his zombie movies i i love my saturday night live and i love my uh comedy movies so if I, if you're sick and you don't feel good you put this on you're gonna feel a little bit better yep it always delivers but i can't guarantee you that i have a no honk guarantee when i'm sick <laughs> john thank you so much for coming yes, on yes thank you you're very welcome it was a lot of fun your expertise was much appreciated and uh we hope you had fun my thanks to Russell Guest and Chad Robinson of the Retro Movie Roundtable podcast. You can connect with them on Twitter at movie underscore retro. And thanks as well to our most generous patrons, Sam Bowers, Carissa Eubank, Aaron and Trader, Neil Weinstein, and Justin Gardner. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever app you prefer to listen on. Your subscription helps us grow and your support is greatly appreciated. We'll be back soon with our season 45 preseason extravaganza. But until then, this has been episode number 84 of the Saturday Night Live After Party Podcast. I'm John Murray. Good night 
Have a pleasant tomorrow. I think you should just go get Cassandra. I just don't think she wants me to. Let me tell you a little something I've learned about women. They want you to come get them. They love it. I just wish there's something that I could offer her that Benjamin couldn't. You think of something. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I know. The guy in the limo, Mr. Big. The guy who owns Sharp Records. If there's only a way that we could get him to listen to Cassandra play. Hold. Hold. You remember the security guard at the concert? He said Mr. Sharp was driving back through Chicago on Friday. That's right. Wow. Aren't we lucky we were there to get all that information? It seemed extraneous at the time. Okay. First, I'll access a secret military spy satellite that's in a geosynchronous orbit over the Midwest. Then, I'll ID the limo by the vanity plate Mr. Big and get its approximate position. Then, I'll reposition the transmitter dish in the remote truck to 17.32 degrees east. Hit West Star 4 over the Atlantic, bounce the signal down here to the Azores, up to Comptat 6, beam it back to SATCOM through transmitter number 137, and down to the dish in the back of Mr. Big's limo. It's almost too easy. We can only pray he's watching television in his limo at that exact moment. We'll need help. We'll, we'll help. help. You get your dander, we'll do the rest. To the Merkel Beach!